Welcome to the Toxic Google Podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Emmy, bringing you this week's episode of the podcast. Toxic Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode of this podcast is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash toxicgoogle. Comedian and former Saturday Night Live cast member Colin Quinn, the satirical sage from Brooklyn, joined Googler David Winmuller back in February 2019 to discuss his off-Broadway show, Colin Quinn, Red State, Blue State, where he laid bare the absurdities, hypocrisies, and calamities on both sides of the political divide. Regardless of which side you may find yourself on, Colin came to, quote, own the libs, own the conserves, and all of you in between. Here's Colin Quinn, Red State, Blue State. Thank you. Thanks you so much for coming. Sure. So, what do we do about this free speech thing? Uh, well, it's too late. The, uh, too late to stop it now. People want to speak, unfortunately. The, um, yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's, it's like anything else. It, everything starts out as a great idea and then just dwindles down to, you know, destroyed by us. Okay. Well, congratulations on your show. Thanks. Um, great reviews all the way around. It's been extended through March. Um, uh, it even had great reviews in both the New York Times and the National Review. Yes, I know. I was, <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> how, how, uh, I mean, mission accomplished. How, uh, 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 what did you, uh, what was you, were you surprised by this feedback? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten a lot of, uh, weird reviews anyway in my career. So it's like, you know, at a certain point you just become numb to any abuse of it. So I was surprised and happily surprised I was getting good reviews. But I mean, yeah, obviously... You know, I mean, getting reviews, it's supposed, I mean, I, that's how I am anyway. I'm not really left or right. Right. And, and, you know? and every single one of the reviewers got something out. It was like a Rashomon thing. Right. You know, where they were each hearing, yeah, Colin's telling it like it is. And each side heard their own thing. Right. That's the weird thing is like after this show, the whole show is about how everybody's just, this is just ridiculous and how we're all not that bright yet, you know, as far as human nature. And then every, people come up to me at the show going, yeah, like, they start argue, they start yelling about the same things that they that I'm complaining about. My show is me complaining that people have the right to complain on social media, basically. I mean, if you really look at it past the opening level, it's just me being a hypocrite and saying nobody should be allowed to say all these things except for me. But, <laughs> but I'm trying to hide that. But, but they're just... But it's like everybody just goes right back into everybody's in this so locked in right now. Yeah, it's like it's like mass brainwashing, mass hysteria. You know, you you did a, a lot of research for both like this show for your constitutional show. Was it? Did you find anything surprising like in the founding of the country or the the discourse? In that well, process? yeah, just that it never really that it never really took off the way. You know, it was never. It's just been a fight the whole way. Like I, in the constitution show, I would say like it was fine when nobody knew what anybody else was doing. But since social media, everybody knows exactly how everybody else is. So you can't just be like, ah, oh, I never see them anyway. You see everybody in each other's face all day. You know? Well, that's interesting because are we like now breeding these internet savvy personas to, to excel as opposed to like the policy wonks that we created like in high school elections, you know, that we hated them before? Like, is this what we are creating now? Yeah, I wonder because like, I'll just take comedians, for example. Like a lot of comedians suddenly became very serious people. And so I always say everybody's trying to be funny on social media except comedians. And <laughs> but it's like suddenly people, this other side, it's almost like uh remember Beyonce had like that 
side personality, I forget the name. And I shouldn't, if I knew the name, you'd all be creeped out. <laughs> Sasha Fierce, thank you. And um, I shouldn't have even been that quick to know what you were talking about, but I did. But, but I'm just saying, I feel like online, people do have this side personality now where people I know, and I'm like, they just online, they're a different person than they are in real life. Well, you, That's the other weird thing. You had a side personality before. Oh, online, yeah. Mine. No, 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 not online. In your book, you talk about column. <laughs> That's quite a jump, but all right, yeah. <laughs> Back when I, when I used to drink in my early 20s, but I used to pretend to be, uh, I was trying to pick up girls, and I would pretend I had an Irish accent. Like, I mean, I would just put on this northern Irish accent. It's, it's not as lame as it sounds. It was a specific <laughs> Belfast. It wasn't like a Lucky Charms guy. This was like a serious, I was doing serious character work. And I would just sit at the bar by myself because nobody wanted to hang out with me anyway because I was like the real, you know, typical idiot drunk. And I'd just be like, hey, how you doing? And I'd be talking to like all these people. And I'd say my name was Colm. And I would hint around that I was from Belfast and I had to leave under murky circumstances <laughs> because of an IRA thing, you know. So it, it, it ended with, it ended, a lot of times it ended in a lot of violence where I was caught a lot of beatings. I'll be honest, but, um, you know, but that was my plan. And it's, and it seemed like it's, it worked for, for, it worked for a while. Like it would work for like a half hour and then something would happen where I'd be exposed or the girl would just be like, you just said, you now you said you're from Brooklyn or something. And I'd be like, oh, you know, and it was just, it never really panned out the way I had it planned in my head. <laughs> Look, I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying it was, a, it was an idea, you know, <laughs> you're in your early twenties, you, you know, you want to meet women or men and you have ideas. That was my idea. I committed to it. <laughs> I, and I would just lock in after it's the mind. Like after a couple of beers, I was like, I'm column now. And I'd walk in. I had a uh, like a green corduroy jacket with patches and like an Irish sweater. If you saw me at that time, I know now it looks like it wouldn't. At that time, it could have worked on you. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Smoking, you know, the bar tortured. So. So, like, uh, getting back to your show. Uh, yes. Right. <laughs> but I had, but, no. but I forgot to say, I had read this one big book called Trinity about I, the Irish. So I stole the name. I stole every aspect of the guy's personality, except that was set in the 1800s and mine was in the 1970s. Right. So everything else was just right from that book. So anybody who read the book. Yeah, Leon Yeah. And it was a popular book, so I probably got caught out a few times on that one, too. Well, you, you, you're you a reader. like, like I love to read, yeah. Uh, and, and so, like, Joyce... Other yes. Irish, uh, yeah. any, anything else that is like really impressed you greatly? <sighs> I mean, not late, but I mean, uh, you know, my favorite book of all time is called Confederacy of Dunces, which is like to me the funniest book ever written, and I still read it all the time. You know, I'm obsessed with it my whole life. But I mean, yeah, I love, you know, I love to read. You said it was a test for dating. Yeah, I actually used it, I used to buy it for whatever girlfriend I was dating. I'm not coming across good in this, I get it. Um, <laughs> you're like, this guy's a monster. Um, fraudulent accents, testing people with books. <laughs> hey, I never said I was a great guy. I'm a comedian. Nice is not funny. It's, um, and uh, yeah, so I would just, uh, I would give the book to whatever girl I was dating and she said, hey, you know, it's a great book. And, uh, you know, if she liked it, then I felt like we connected. And if she didn't like it, I was like, oh man, this is good. You know, but girls gave me books to test too, you know. Any, any you remember? Frankenstein. <laughs> which I never read before. And I was like, wow, it was really, it's deep. It's so much deeper. And spe speaking of today, there's something about Frankenstein. I've been thinking about Frankenstein lately, which is 
like the thing on social media is people we do love. I love it too to go after somebody that you don't like. Like the instinct of vigilante, just get them, get them. It's such a human nature thing. It's just crazy. And we've made it a lot more efficient now. And we made it a lot more efficient. Yeah. yeah it's very easy. Yeah. 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 Because uh, Frankenstein is a good guy. When you read the book, you're like, oh, Frankenstein was a good, the monster was a good guy and the doctor was a good guy. It just was, he, he had like a bad spin. Like they just caught, you know what I mean? Bad PR. It's almost, yeah, it almost was like a, uh, like a social, early social media commentary. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Next project. Yes. Um, so like, like speaking of the social, like Hobbes talked about social contract. So we're now in this new phase of social media contract. What, right. is, what does that look up? What are we giving away and what do we get in return now? Well, I mean, like I say, it's, it's, I mean, it is in some ways you expose so much stuff, right? But at the same time, nothing can really get done because everybody's got a little, everybody's got a little bit of something. You know, you say how many times you have people pointing something out and then people go, let's go over your tweets in the past. Everybody's like, whoa, you know, it's just everybody's a little bit guilty. So in a way, I guess, I'm not sure where it goes from here, but it's, you know, like nobody's, nobody's pure, you know. Have, I think, have you changed your behavior, like your social, like you started doing something right when the internet came out, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, that's, that's a big mistake. I'm never going to do that again. Well, no, but my whole social media thing was ironic from the beginning. So it's kind of like this, you know, like I'm just literally like a troll. Even when I'm trying to be on social media, I'm always like, like even, you know, I'm just like, Talking about the weather, like, you know, just my whole thing is like about, it's just like kind of ironically, it was funny at the beginning, I was telling you backstage, when I first started Twitter, like 2009 or whatever, and I was like, Will Farrell, he had won this Mark Twain Award, and I was like, well, you know, he, he, people see him as a nice guy, but when I worked at SNL, you know, it was quite the opposite. He was, you know, he stole Anchorman, that was my script, it was on my desk, and then I came by later, and he was putting it in a copy machine, and then I said... <laughs> I said, but, you know, I don't blame him. It's, it's heroin does that to people. <laughs> but then it became like a real thing where suddenly, you know, the Huff Post and everybody's like saying, Will, Colin Quinn says Will Farrell is a heroin addict and then a heroin dealer. I called him a dealer. And then people are calling me and finally it became like I had to make a retraction because, you know, but so I've always been like, you know, just obviously joking on Twitter. I've never said a sincere thing on Twitter in my life. <laughs> well that leaves me like you, you, in your show, you talk about that we're breaking up the country. Yeah. It needs to be, or it will be. Doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Um, so, so a tweet like yours maybe will be the Fort Sumter of tweets you know, <laughs> uh, that you may start something that gets, you know, uh, you, <laughs> you mean joking and then it becomes a real thing. Right, right, right. That's yeah. Like the mouse that roared. You know? You're right, though, but you're right. A tweet probably will start our next war. It will be a tweet, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you anticipate something like that. Um, <laughs> so, oh, my God. So, like, one thing that is uh, on my mind a lot is that the, it's relentless. Like, the churn that we get, so much information, so much. Yeah. Like, I remember a time where I could go two weeks without knowing what the president was doing. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so do you disconnect? Do you, I, I know it's part of your work, but, like, do you find ways that you can actually really disconnect from that whole thing? I mean, I haven't yet, but I mean, um, you can't, you know, cause you just, it's, it's just this thing. You just are compulsive. You, you have to go to your phone. Like I, I never even, I'm just like, nah. And then when you have to disconnect for an hour or two, you feel great. But then you're like, oh, you catch up and you feel like for the first minute I'm catching up. I'm like, I'm so happy. 
And then I just get that sick thing where, like, I've seen this a hundred times. Everybody's saying the same thing. I'm saying the same. Everybody's just this, you know. But at first, I'm just like, yeah, it feels happy to come back and say hello. It's like, it's like meeting your friends, you know, when you meet a friend for dinner that you used to be good friends with. And then you're like, oh, I haven't seen him in a long time. And you remember the good times. And then after a minute, you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the same old feeling, you know? Yeah. No offense to all my friends, but, you know. <laughs> Um, so, like, one concept in your show, you talk about people not listening, that we just talked. Right. And, like, Twitter is a, is a cacophony of shouting, right? Yeah. And, and so, like, um, how, how do we fix that? Is, have you seen that ever in history where it's just, like, people had stopped listening and then they started or there was some event, uh, you know, that brought us together more so? I mean, right. I mean, obviously, what, like, after 9-11 in New York, the, the, the month after 9-11 was... The weirdest New York, no horns honking, nobody yelling at each other. It was the strangest time where people were just, and you're like, oh, people can act nice if they want, you know? Yeah. Everybody was nice to each other. It was a weird, weird time, you know? And then one day, people started honking. You just started hearing honks, horns honking. You hadn't heard them for a month. I mean, it was crazy. And then it was back to normal. But I mean, my ideas would be, like, if I could be in charge of, of society, what I would do <laughs> is I would make once a year, have a constitutional convention and just have everybody, whoever you would choose to speak, but everybody in the country also would have to agree. Whatever gets said here, you can't attack it. You can't, you have to let it be spoken. Like this is the safe space where everybody says what they want. You can't have articles the next day. That per It's not like a popularity thing. Just kind of everybody speaks, like you, you get what's considered the best minds or whatever and just have everybody speak honestly, but you can't attack them. Now, I don't know how you'd pull that off, but you know what I mean? Like, because part of it is us, that we're like, that person's the problem. You know what I mean? Like, it's so easy to pick one symbolic thing. You know what I mean? Like, I talk about Trump. I say, after Trump leaves, our problem is the, the divide doesn't go away. He's just a symbol of it. But you know what I mean? So people are like, we got to get rid of Trump. Yeah, but once he leaves, that still doesn't change the inherent problems that the divides or whatever. So that's just one problem. So I'm just saying, instead of it being just attacking a person and thinking you could crush that symbol by crushing that person, it's like I would like it to be more uh, a, a more intelligent conversation about what's really, where people could be honest and say what they really feel and just try to figure this out. You know? And, and you, you've said before, like, Trump is, is just one part of the, like, one, like, a, not a, a symptom of that disconnect that we have. Right, right. He's just a symptom, yeah. Yeah. Um, but here in New York, we've had plenty of people, like uh, different people, and you talk about it in your book and in your show, um, about like how uh, we've gotten over it. Like uh, we've, uh, a, a new group will come in and, and, and after a rough time, it will get integrated, you know, to, to then hate the next group that comes, you know. That right. Oh, you mean, yeah, when I was growing up and stuff, yeah. Right. Like, so, so like is living in New York that experience that people need to actually to be able to listen or just to, you know, uh, be able to coexist? No, I mean, I feel like New York is, you know, New York, even when I was growing up, like I look back on it now, I grew up, it was very mixed, black, white, Puerto Rican, and and we got along better. I would say we all, everybody understood each other better than they would say in places where they wouldn't be around each other all the time. But people seemed to separate. By the time I was like 17, people were going more away from each other towards their own group. And it was just, it, we changed a lot ourselves. Everybody did. 
So I don't know. I don't know what that, I don't know. You know, you could have a, you could have a racial constitutional convention and a red state, blue state constitutional convention. Just a country of conventions where people are talking all the time. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that, that every time I watch any show on TV, it just deteriorates into people just locking in and just, it's just strange that we're still doing the same thing, even though the results are not going the way that, you, that we would want them to go, you know? So you you have been raised in, like, so many parts of Brooklyn. Like right. Like Bensonhurst, Flatbush, Park Slope. Like, uh, how is it, like, do you go back and visit and, uh, like, these places? Oh, no, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm one of those cliche New York people that just sits there and kicks myself because we used to work on the houses. Like, we would work on the houses in Park Slope when people would buy them. Yeah. Me and my friends would be, they'd bring in, you know, these kids, like, 15-year-olds, were 15, were doing the floors, doing the, you know, just all the prep work and all. And I'd be going, look at these idiots buying houses at Park Slope, Sterling Place, 6th <laughs> Avenue, 5th <laughs> Avenue. I was like, these people are psychotic. Like, I wanted to live in Valley Stream. That was my dream. I said, Valley Stream, Long Island, that's where I wanted to live because my cousins lived there and it was nice. And I just had no idea. And now I look and I'm like, I would have been, I would have been, a billionaire. I would have been bigger than Howard Schultz right now. <laughs> I'd be sitting and going, hey, listen, I came from Brooklyn and now I'm a billionaire. I'm going to be president of the United States. <laughs> but I mean, it's crazy. And Williamsburg, I still wouldn't have, I would never have, I was like, Williamsburg was like gangs when I was a kid. It was just like a wild neighborhood, you know, Bushwick. I mean, it was crazy. So it's like, I wouldn't have, you know. So I'm, I look back at my life and I realize it was basically what I'm saying is an unmitigated failure. Instead of being a comedian, sitting at a bar doing an Irish accent, I should have been a real estate uh, mogul. <laughs> um, how, did you, how did you get into comedy? Like, where, like I was bartending, and uh, uh, I was a bartender and a waiter, you know, at all these different restaurants. And I was like, you know, I wanted to be an actor in the back of my head, but I was like, I didn't know how to go about being an actor. It was like, you know, I was just like a haphazard person. And then, luckily, this is the early 80s, I started doing comedy, and comedy was just starting to boom. But I didn't realize that at the time. So I started, and I'd wait on line, and every week on, my, on the line, every week, almost, most weeks, it was me, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, waiting on these lines to get into, like, open mic and do five minutes, and we all got to know each other. And uh, so it was, like, 1984, probably. And then we started to pass at these clubs and everybody started, and it was just this little group of, uh, of comedians, but it was so much smaller than today. It was, in some ways it was easier. I mean, there was a lot of comedians around that didn't make it, but, but it was just such a, it was such a small world compared to today, you know? Did, you, was, did your parents, like, uh, were they uh, big fans of this? Did they, you know, support you through that? Or, or? Well, I mean, I was already like in early 20s by then. I, was, I wasn't even living at home, you know, so it was like, you know, and they weren't living with each other anyway. So it was like the, uh, yeah, they weren't, they were, they were glad I was doing something. That they were just like, yeah, that's great. You know, nobody, nobody thought about comedy. Everybody's just like comedy. It was like a crazy thing. Right. Like in those days, like hey, this guy's a comedian. People would just, it was so much easier to be a comedian in those days because you would just go on a stage and people would start getting excited. Like there's somebody going to be a comedian on stage. Like nobody ever saw a comedian before. Now people are like, oh, my cousin does that for seven years, and I, I tried it for two years. You know, it's not a big deal anymore, but back then everybody's like, ooh, comedian. <laughs> okay, so you, um, you lived uh, in Park Slope for, for... For most of my childhood. I grew up in Flat, Flatbush, then Park Slope, then Bensonhurst. I lived with my girlfriend, then 
Astoria, Queens. Then um, I lived in Staten Island for a brief period of time. I don't talk about that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and then I lived in uh, I lived in um, uh, Manhattan. I lived in like like Yorkville, like East 78th between First and York. Then I lived on 45th between 9th and 10th. But in those days, this is in the 80s. Those apartments were so cheap. I won't even say it because yeah, everybody will kill me. But it was like really. I lived on East 10th between A and B, uh -huh. like 400 a month. It was almost like a whole floor. It was crazy, you know. <laughs> Because they were considered bad neighborhoods back then. Right. I, I read your book. It's it's like it's uh, it's it's funny and it's also a lot of autobiographical. I I, I don't think I've ever read a book where uh, the person gets punched so much. Yeah. Um. Like like all over every chapter. I yeah. Get beat up. Yeah. Um. Well, like I said, I was a very um, what they call beer muscles. I was a very tough guy, in in here. So I would just, I would go to bars and I always wanted to be 6'8", like 240, like my whole life. Even when I was a little kid, I resented the fact that, like I'd see Connie Hawkins was my child little idol, he was a basketball player. And I was like, how come he's 6'8", and I'm not 6'8". So my whole life I was, so when I would get drunk, I'd be like, look at that bouncer. How come he gets to be 6'5", and I'm, you know, 5'? So I just flick my cigarettes at him. And then they'd beat, they'd beat me out, literally, I didn't just get punched a lot, I get punched out into the street like the old school beatings where you go flying out of the club. Because <laughs> I go after hours, there's a lot of after hours clubs in New York. So I was a bartender all night, so I'd go drinking after hours. So it'd be like six in the morning, seven in the morning, I'm walking out, like my shirt's all ripped, <laughs> all bloody, walking home, you know? Wow. Yeah. Well, it, it actually, it, it ends up being like part of your like philosophy. You talk about, uh, I think a friend of yours, Harry mentioned there's a uh, never punched in the face club. And oh, right, right. Of people, those who have been punched in the face and those who haven't. <laughs> right, and those that, My uh, friend came up with that one. Yeah, that, that, um, that people that have have a certain amount of respect for each other. Right, right. The others that, that haven't. Right, know? they don't just say cat. Well, that's another thing from social media. People talk a lot, to, you know, there was digital soldiers, whatever, computer guy. And um, so people just say a lot of nasty stuff. And it's like, this stuff is going to lead to war. That's why I worry sometimes because I'm like, you can't just keep talking to people, ridiculing attacking people, people are going to react one day. You know what I mean? It's it's just, you know, it's not human nature to just think people are just going to take your abuse. It's just the way it goes. It's It's been proven in every society, including ours, many times. You know? But maybe that part of that is that people haven't been either punched in the face. Uh, I'm sure we could fix that. Uh, right. But, or, or that people haven't been punched in the wallet or, or you know, like, like right. inequality is one of the things that people talk about greatly. And you sure. Like well, with uh, people with, driving up with Lamborghinis. Oh, right. Like lecturing, uh, you know, some sheet metal worker from, you know, the red states and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's real stuff. It's like people just talk and it's spraying people. Like a lot of people in, in the media or in showbiz, whatever, just telling people, look, this is how you have to. The problem to me is like everybody, the whole country is built on the fact that you get to decide for yourself how to think. That's the only thing that everybody kind of says, well, that's one thing we came up with. And now everybody's just trying to force everybody to think the way they think. And it's not working. Yeah. Um, you, um, you grew up, your parents were teachers? Yeah. And so how did that shape you? Like, what type of, what, what, what type of teacher? I mean, because they, because they, they well, my, my parents were, my mother was just, well, I almost said just a housewife. Um, my mother was, only became a teacher after my parents got divorced. She went to college. She didn't go to college before that. But so she did it later in life. And she taught special ed. My father taught English. And so she was a special ed teacher all over Brooklyn. And um, 
And so, yeah, it just taught me to read, to like reading, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I love to read from early ages. That was my other part of my thing with my jacket and my Irish thing. I always had a book. I usually had like a play. Like I said, I was going to be an actor. And, you know, so I always had like a little play tucked in my pants pocket or my jacket pocket. Mm -hmm. Then I'd be at the play. You ever see like an, a pompous asshole at the bar breaks out a play and starts reading by himself? That was me. <laughs> Strindberg, I'd be like, yeah. So did you, did you get any plays? Did you do that? Did I get into any plays? Yeah. I got in two plays, and one was, uh, was, uh, was just this weird, I mean, I, I can't even tell you what they were about to this day, but they were like these weird experimental plays in the East Village in like the early 80s, where one was, uh, it was just some lady was pretending to swim the whole time, and then I had to carry, <laughs> but I had to carry her around like I was like the swimmer. I mean, I was in pretty good shape when I think about it, carrying somebody around a whole play, you know? I mean, I was like 23, even at the end of the play, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is really hard. And, um, and then I was in some other play where it was just like, I, I, I can't even remember what it was about. It was just insane, you know? But I was, I was, I was the worst, I was the worst employee. I was the worst, when I was drinking, all I would be thinking about was, yeah, just sitting there smoking, plotting how to get more drinks. So I didn't even care about anything I was doing other than that. Even when I bartended, I'd be like, yeah, trying to get back to my drinks. I was really a, a compulsive personality. So um, how did you get to remote control, which I remember, it was super fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing stand-up. You know, I had quit drinking, so that's why I did stand-up. Because I was like, I have nothing to lose. That was the only thing I really liked, you know. I had nothing to lose. It was like, they took away my best friend. So I started doing stand-up because I was like, I don't care if I bomb in front of people. There's nothing compared to this. You know, and so I was doing stand up for like three years, and then um, they just saw me at a club, and then they hired me because my voice, and my voice was even more like this because I smoked three packs a day. So I talked like this, even though I was like 28, I talked like this. <laughs> so they thought it was funny. I thought they were hiring me for my brilliant comedy. It was a disconnect. So I thought they, oh, they, <laughs> they get that I'm a great comic. They were just like making fun of the fact that my voice was so stupid. So the first week we had a big fight. Me and the MTV bosses, where I was like, I quit this show. You know what I mean? Like, because I was like, you know, hi, you know, I'm not doing commercials for you. I just had this whole idea. I'm like, well, I got to do the advertisement. So I, so I ended up, I was so resentful that I ended up doing the advertisements like really sarcastically for their products to where the people that advertise Casio or Mitsubishi, like they're like, this guy's disrespectful. Either he starts doing our advertisements sincerely or he's out. And I was like, I'm not doing shit. But the show was on the air, so all the kids that were watching the show loved it because I guess they were like, oh, this guy's insulting the products while he's doing <laughs> yeah. So then they wanted to keep me. Right. So I lucked out that I was so snotty that kids were like, ah, ha, ha, like they liked it. And then suddenly the advertisement was like, oh, yeah, do it his way, you know. <laughs> That's great. And, and how did that, how did you get onto SNL from there? Well, then after, uh, after MTV was over, I was right back to, like, I was really, I mean, <laughs> I had to move back in with my mother. She was living in Bay Ridge at the time. And I had to move in with my mother. And people would see me on the block going, weren't it, was you just on TV? <laughs> and I was back. I had no money. Because MTV didn't really pay that much. Right. And I just, I, it was just a combination of things. I don't know, but I Free ended up literally sky. living with my mother and my niece in this apartment. And, um, and, uh. So then I ended up getting a, a writing job on Living Color. So I moved to L.A. and Living Color was in its last couple of years. So they brought me on to write for that show. So that gave me enough to live on. 
And then SNL hired me as a writer. And then once I was on there, I started doing stuff on there. Was it weird to take over for Norm MacDonald? Was oh, it awkward? The weirdest, yeah. It was really awkward. Yeah. It was bad. Like, speaking of social media, at that time, social media was almost new. People just barely, I don't know if it was MySpace or whatever, but it just started. And I was one of the first people that had to deal with the fact that this new guy sucks. You're fat. You fat neck. I'm sick and tired of seeing his stupid face. And I was like, what the heck? I was so mad. But like, it was like the first, I was one of the first people I had to deal with like feedback on that, on that digital level right. that people didn't like you. So From all was, over the globe. Yeah. And it was really interesting. Huh. Um, so do you watch Saturday Night Live now? Do you think it's changed drastically from when you were there? No, I mean, I watch it once in a while, but I mean, you know, I mean, I, I watch, like, I watch it like everybody else watches online on Tuesday morning or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, let's see what this one is. And uh, it's the same. I mean, it's the same as when I was there. Like, I see it from the side of, like, I'm like, oh, that person. I just imagine how it was trying to get that sketch on. So when I'm watching, I'm like, oh, I bet that. And look at that person. I could tell their lines got cut. They're just standing there in the back, like, why they have me in this guy? So you know it from, like, whatever, you know, like anything else. You just look at the different angles, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm going to change topics. Like, uh, something that you have your one-year anniversary coming up. Oh, my heart attack? Yeah. 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 Um, that happened on Valentine's Day. Yeah. How has that changed you? <laughs> and don't worry. My girlfriend noted it at the time. She goes, yeah, Valentine's Day. Interesting. People, yeah, that's, that's pretty drastic yeah. to get out of Valentine's Day. You don't have to be Carl Young to figure out that one. And, um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, I just had a heart attack. I just came out of the gym and... I was like, oh, man, I pulled a muscle. And I was like, oh, shoot. I think, I, you know, I'm having a heart attack. And then next thing you know, I'm in the uh, ambulance. And I was like, losing air. And I'm like, I'm actually, I said, I might die right now. Because I'm losing air. And I couldn't breathe. And I'm like, it hurts. A heart attack, like, physically hurts. Like, I didn't think it hurt. I thought you went numb. You don't go numb. It's like something pushing, like, it's my elbow in your heart. I was like, ah. And then uh, I was like, I could actually die. It was so weird. Because I always thought I'd get it. I thought it'd be like, doctor, sit me down and go, listen, you're two years. Get your affairs in order. Take care of business. I put out all my mission statements online. Visit all my enemies, you know. Get forgiveness from all my, you know, past thing. And then, but no, it was like, this, sometimes it just ends. You forget about that. Forget about that part of dying. Yeah. Sometimes it's not a big dramatic two year, you know. Yeah bad movie of the week type thing. It's just, you're just done. So did you change anything in that last year? Yeah, I mean, I changed. I mean, everyone's like, do you change your diet? But I'm like, you know, look, if they're, they're giving me medication, like heavy medication, it's disrespectful to science and the advances they've made. <laughs> if I then take the medication and don't trust that their medication works by having to change my diet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's my theory. Um, but have you visited enemies and like, you know, <laughs> the enemies? No, I haven't visited them yet because it's, but yeah, I do think in terms of like, oh, what would I do if I really only had a finite amount of time to live? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, uh, I mean, I know I do. I mean, I know I'm going to die now. Like before I kind of knew, but you never really, you don't know for sure until you actually die. You're like, oh no, this is going to happen. Um, but it hasn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have like this big, effect on you that you wanted to where you're like hey man everything's great you know what i mean yeah still annoyed by every little thing you know just city driving around fucking on a train everything's just you know the same so as a comedian you've been doing this for decades yeah. um 
have has it changed drastically now with the 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 what you can do and 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 has that changed what you do or you're like you you have a pass yeah i mean look i mean you can only you can only do what you think is funny of course it's, everything changes you know what i mean like everything starts out for the right reasons i think like uh people like even political correctness started out for the right reasons but eventually it becomes mob rule where everybody's like you know you feel good telling people you know what i mean like yeah people can't say this so it starts out for a good reason and then it becomes twisted by just the general idea of you know people get everybody just gets involved you know but i mean uh comedy is it's it has changed in the, it has changed in the sense that like there's a lot of things that don't get discussed in comedy just cuz people are like that's off limits and you know that's stupid because it's comedy you know it's supposed to you're supposed to discuss certain things if you can make them funny that being said so like a lot of people will be like well i want to say what i want to say and a lot of like i find myself defending the rights of comedians to say things sometimes i'm like i don't even agree with that i don't even like what you're saying but i still got to defend it on general principle just because i'm a comedian you know what i mean so you know he's he's sticking with the idea even though i'm like i got to defend your dumb joke i don't even find it funny it's shock humor i don't go for that you know right so it's a weird you know it's been it's it's a weird time in in every for everybody with everything i feel like and comedy is just one of those other things yeah and your show you you do that like uh you are very uh blunt about different topics that oh yeah i've always you know like i said i just you know i feel like it's if you make it funny then people will more likely go that's funny Yeah, I mean like you you do like a celebrity roast of the states. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So like um each one you 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 call out all of them and uh yeah. uh give them give them something. Is there was any of those hard to do? Do you want to share any of those right now? Um I'll share them, but I don't think they're hard to do. I mean, I don't think they're hard like the New York story was more like people like you're talking about everybody's ethnicity, but people liked it because everybody thought, you know, obviously he's not trying to attack I'm not trying to slip anything by anybody. Right. Like I feel like that's a big problem in comedy. If you're trying to be slick and say something without taking ownership of it, then you're going to be in trouble. But my state ones is like, you know, why well, say New York, you know, I just talk about how the fall of every state. New York was once the home of drunken writers at you know, the Algonquin Round Table and now it's drunken texters at Santa Con and <laughs> and and then um Massachusetts where once Sam Adams, you know, pouring tea into Boston Harbor now it's Fenway fans pouring Sam Adams on the Yankee outfielder's heads <laughs> and just I go over all the you know just just mocking every state as he come along you know? it's great it was funny very funny thanks yeah um and before I ask my last question uh we have two microphones so if you want to ask something feel wait what about you what about you I'm sorry what about your state Virginia Virginia I go Virginia the snobs of the south stop trying to be Connecticut you hayseeds <laughs> Sorry. It's good. No, that's funny. Uh, it's like that's funny. Um so uh again we're going to have questions so feel free to line up uh if you have questions for Collins. Um last one you you've uh, hosted a comics talk show, uh Tough Crowd. Oh yeah. That was awesome. Thanks. Was very uh, tough. Um you helped our troops with your USO tours. Oh yeah, we did a USO tours. So nice. And um and you know you have your now an online you've had online shows cop show cop show it's my baby um, but and so like what's next more directing writing what what's going on 
I would like to do more cop shows now that you mentioned this. That's really my, you know what I mean? In fact, now that I'm here at Google, I might as well say, the problem with cop show is that you didn't watch it and you guys know how to get it up. It's got like 100,000 views per show. You need like 8 million. Mm -hmm. It's too late anyway, but go watch it. It's funny. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to pull a strategy move and I was like, I'm over my head. I don't know what I'm talking about. So everybody just watch it. It is funny, though. It is funny. It's funny, right? I swear to God, it's funny. <laughs> if you don't like it, you see me in the street, you punch me in the face. <laughs> Obviously, it's my go-to move, getting punched in the face. <laughs> All right, we'll go to the questions. Thanks. Hi, thank you so much for coming. Um, I watched um, a New York story a few years ago, and I thought it was great. Um, I went to the Minetto Lane Theater. Um, but my question for you is, um, you touched on this a little bit, but um, there's a lot of controversy around what some comedians talk about, like certain topics have, having to be off limits, you know, like racial jokes or sure. sexuality, sexuality jokes and things like that. And I struggle with that personally because some of the jokes I do find funny personally. So I have that own struggle myself. I'm like, oh shoot, like I don't want to laugh, but it's making me laugh. Like, what is your perspective on that? Like, should some of these jokes be off limits and you know, that internal struggle that some people may have, like, is it warranted? Is it, should we move past it? Because I don't necessarily think that everyone's bigoted, but I understand the rationale for not having these jokes. So it's it's sort of a struggle for me personally. Yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's a good question because everybody, everybody gets offended by something. I always quote this guy, Jack Simmons, who was a comedian from the 80s, where I'm from, and, uh, <laughs> the, t the place where I came from and but he used to always go on stage and when people would moan he would go come on folks it's comedy somebody's got to get hurt and that's the thing so it just we've just shifted what's offensive now so it's kind of like there's things that offend me there's things that offend you and like I say in the show you know I say things, since they've gotten rid of ethnic humor from mainstream society because they felt it encourages racism I go that's proven racism is gone so it was a great success. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's too much focus on stand-up material. I, everything's a fact. Stand-up is, is not nice. And sometimes people say things that make me mad in stand-up all the time. But like you say, if you're laughing, you shouldn't feel like, hmm, why am I laughing at this? You know, like suddenly it makes you into, you know, something that's, that. there's just a, there's no... What do they call it? Uh, suspension of disbelief, which is a term that always bugged me because I think it's supposed to be a suspension of belief and suspension of disbelief. But another time. But anyway, the point is, like when you're in a movie, you say, okay, I'm going into this world. And stand-up, I know it's not the same thing. That There is a, a lot more truth to stand-up. So it isn't all just jokes. I get it. But yeah, it's, I don't feel, I feel like it's, I feel like it's going down a path that I can't imagine how there'll be jokes in five years because if everything falls under the standard of, you know what, that group of people, that's a little bit off the, I mean, you'll see it, you'll see it now, like in stand-up, like somebody will say like, say any name of any group and people are like, oh, like they just, before they even get to the joke. So it's like people say, celebrate diversity, just don't point out anybody's different. You know what I mean? <laughs> so there is like, a, there's gotta be at some point, uh, Somebody's got to come with a, a, a clear point 
of like what it is. You know, it's just people marking down, okay, that's a 8.5. We're just going to have to start doing it based on, out of 10, how offensive is that joke? And how wrong am I for enjoying it to 0.4? You know what I mean? Because stand-up gets to be this weird place where it will be, we might as well be in 1950s at a glee club where you're just like, everything's positive. I mean, stand-up, everything's negative. That's what it's about. So I don't know, I don't know, but I don't, personally, I don't like it. I'll say that. I don't think it's good for stand-up. And I don't think, I think most stand-ups agree with me that it's weird. And you don't want it to become the kind of thing where stand-up is just a motivational speaking or, or people are just lecturing the audience, which happens a lot. Sometimes I feel like, where suddenly everyone's like, now this is what goes on. And you're like, okay, we're within the parameters. Like stand-up punches down sometimes. It doesn't just punch. People are like, stand-up shouldn't punch down. Yeah, it should. It punches up, it punches down, it elbows you in the side of the face. It's dirty. Stand-up is wrong. You know what I mean? So that's the other part of it that's kind of getting into a weird area. I realized that I've spent the last eight minutes answering this question and <laughs> don't think I'm not aware that I've said nothing. But <laughs> such, are the, such are the times we live in. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> uh, can you speak in your Northern Irish accent for the next, like, until you're done? For the next how long? What? For how long? Just until we're, we're done, I guess. Or until someone tells you, please don't speak in Irish accent, because I don't understand you. I, yes, I will. I'll do it like that. Awesome, thank you. And I'll tell you something else. I hope Irish people don't see it, because they might think it sinks. <laughs> okay. I'll give you the out and answer this however you, you feel most comfortable. Um, so when you talk about the evolution of stand-up comedy, especially political commentary, like thinking back to Lenny Bruce, Bill Hicks, where we are now, um, is it easier? Is it harder? Is it just the exact same situation? Like, are we, are we in a different place? Or have, have audiences evolved? Have comedians evolved? Or are we just stuck on a loop? Um, from those days, you mean? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a long, another long-winded one. I'm just warning you ahead of time. I can sense I'm going to be rambling again. Um, but it's, it's evolved. You know, it's going to be too long. It's evolved and devolved at the same time. <laughs> I really am a big mouth. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's evolved in that people, like when I was doing comedy in the 80s, people just get away with murder, just cheap things. Be like, that's not even funny. It's just the... the the shock or the whatever of the audience. So now people are listening more, which is good, but it's devolved in the sense that everybody, I feel like there's almost like a film, like a fake film over everything. So when people speak, it's almost like a, we all agree like, okay, you're saying this exists that we know doesn't exist. And then the jokes will come within this fake world we've created. It wasn't as long as the other one, but no, it, was, no. it was just as hard to figure out. I don't even know what I'm saying, but I, you know what I mean? I just feel like there's something very fake going on, and it's infected stand-up, too, you know, where people are like, it should be appropriate. Stand-up should be appropriate. It's like, no, the whole point of stand-up is it's not appropriate. It's, it's kind of, I mean, part of the fun of a stand-up show is you're like, oh, my God, come on, man, that's too much. You know what I mean? And now it's like sort of like, that too much is based on something fake. So people are almost forcing themselves, you know? 
I'm, I'm single-handedly bringing down the stand-up industry right now. We're going to go, I don't want to go to a comedy club if it sucks as bad as he says. But I'm saying there's still a lot of great stand-up out there. Hey, there's still a lot of great stand-up. But, but I mean, there's something, when it comes to politics or whatever, there's just a, a general feeling of appropriate that's just, that's not what stand-up is to me. Thank you. Thanks. Well, thank you, Colin Quinn. Red State, Blue State. Thanks. Playing until March 16th at the Mineta Lane Theater. And we thank you very much for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash toxicgoogle slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more incredible content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash toxicgoogle, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle, at Google Talks. Talk soon!